Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Great to have you with me in the Freedom Hut. Much to discuss today. A lot of actionable intelligence to present Many things that I'm excited to uh, get into here in the hut. Uh, First off, the Senate has opened debate on immigration, so we'll see how that goes. I don't want to make any cynical predictions right off the bat, but I suppose I will. Uh, The Democrats will not budge on this. They're going to go into their whole purpose here is to go into the midterms as the great defenders of non-Americans, illegal aliens, and they think that that's going to rally their base and that they will win and win the midterms and then they won't have to negotiate with Republicans or, or at least they'll be able to completely stymie them if they win the Senate or the House or who knows. Is it a good plan? No, but I think that may in fact be the plan, um, especially when you look at some of the folks who are involved, uh, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, and all the rest. So we'll talk about that Senate immigration debate as much as we we can really not just today but this week it's going to be a big policy issue i'm going to spend a good portion of time today on the complete and utter debacle that has been mainstream media coverage of north korea's presence at the winter olympics in uh, pyeongchang in south korea I wrote about this for TheHill.com today. Um, I referred to the media's, uh, <laughs> North Korea's appalling American media boosters. These you can read on The Hill. I think that, that says a lot of what I'm going to get into. Uh, the headline carries a, a, a fair amount of it. But it's important that we look at why they would all of a sudden turn into cheerleaders for the most vile and brutal dictatorship on the planet. Why is that the case? Here's a hint. Has to do with what they think of Trump. Here's an even better hint. Has to do with how they view Trump versus Kim Jong-un. And, you know, they think it's pretty close in terms of how awful one is to the other. And I'm talking about the New York Times. I'm talking about CNN. This is not left-wing crazy sites. This is, well, maybe. But (laughs) this is basically the... The, the heart of the hashtag resistance in the media. So we'll get into all things going on in North Korea um, with, well, in South Korea, but regarding the North, because it's chilling. I mean, they're celebrating. They're giving the celebrity star treatment to Kim Jong-un's sister. It's utterly appalling. Utterly appalling. And they are favorably comparing Kim Jong-un's sister. And she is not just some person who happens to be related to perhaps the most evil dictator on the planet. Uh, She is a member of the Politburo. She is, in in fact, in charge of the, literally in charge of the propaganda apparatus of the Communist Party of North Korea. She is the chief propagandist, and she is at the Winter 
Olympics, and I understand South Korea is trying to be as constructive as it can with its neighbors to the north and all of that, but to say that she is winning a diplomacy gold medal, that is a quote, or that she has outshined Mike Pence, our vice president, they did that too, is completely beyond the pale. I mean, it is bonkers, bonkers level crazy, but the media is... They've got Trump. When when I say Trump derangement syndrome, I'm not trying to overstate it for effect. I'm not trying to say, oh, yeah, it's like they're crazy, man. No, no. I mean, they're actually something's wrong. They've had a break with reality. They, They need they need some assistance. They need some help. They need to talk it through. So that will all be coming up later, as well as the the show that was put on today at the White House press conference with. Uh, A series of questions about now resigned White House aide Rob Porter. It's as though that's the and I'm not exaggerating. I watched 20 minutes of the White House press conference today. Maybe it was 15. I didn't I wasn't watching the clock, but I watched a good chunk of it. And it was just one Rob Porter question after another. Now, I, I think that domestic abusers are scum. And I don't think that any man with any honor or integrity whatsoever would either hit a woman or defend somebody who does hit a woman. That said, Rob Porter is not the most important news story on planet Earth. I, I, I would go so far as to say Israel blowing up a bunch of a bunch of bad guys in Syria and saying, yeah, we know there are Iranians there, too. Maybe that's a bigger story, which we will talk about here on this show. Yeah, that's right. The Israeli Air Force launching strikes in Syria, everyone, and making it clear they know that, yeah, there's Iranians that are involved there, too. That's a big deal. But no, media only wants to ask about Rob Porter. It's only only White House. I mean, one question, two questions, five questions, fine. I think I heard about 20 questions in a row from the press corps about Rob Porter. I follow politics for a living. I mean, I do follow other things, too, but it, it is part of my job. And I will tell you, I did not know who Rob Porter was until this. He's a guy who carries papers to and from the president. He's in he's in the White House. He's part of the White House. How is this such an important story to the media? Well, it falls into the narrative of Trump is a, you know, Trump uh, protects abusers. Trump is an abuser. They'll even tell you they think Trump is a serial sexual assaulter. I mean, that's that's what this is all really about. It's not about them taking a stand on this issue for the sake of women's rights or anything else. It's it's to bash Trump. This is a this is all about trying to bash Trump. So we'll discuss that in in uh, a little bit. But first, I, I have to say I wanted to get into the latest on the hashtag memo or the memos that are out there. The Russia collusion story, all the stuff that's going on right now. And uh, maybe later we'll talk about budget and infrastructure. Infrastructure is not going anywhere. That's going to be a topic we've got for a long time. So I don't think we have to spend too much on infrastructure today. I know Trump gave a speech on it. I wanted to get into something else first. Also an area where I can bring a little little special something, a little little extra sizzle to the analysis in that I actually know what I'm talking about with this because I used to do analysis inside the intelligence community with a security clearance. So I know when the clowns are lying to us. I know when they're saying things that are just patently false. And that's helpful because a lot of stuff is not adding up on the whole Russia collusion investigation. And we've got a, a big report out right now, just broke before I came on air, about an hour or two before, um, about what the Obama administration was doing in those early days of 
transferring power over to the Trump administration on Russia collusion specifically. Let me give you a little bit of the details here. This courtesy of FoxNews.com. Ex-National Security Advisor Susan Rice. Remember Susan Rice? Remember all the unmasking talk around Susan Rice? We never really found out what was going on there, did we? Just keep that in mind. Susan Rice sent an unusual... Oh, by the way, I was out at Stanford like six months ago, and I passed her on the stairs. And I'm telling you, she looked at me, and it's one of those things where, like, she's not supposed to know who I am, but I've trashed Obama enough on CNN's airwaves that she knew who I was. And she just looked right down. Yeah, that's right. I know Susan Rice, she's too important to know who I am, but I'm telling you, she gave me a look. She knew who I was. We did not talk. There was no friendly, uh, there was no friendly banter. It's like, yeah, what's up? I'm here at Stanford too, Suze. What's going on? Anyway, back to uh, Susan Rice, former uh, National Security Advisor. An unusual email. She sent an unusual email to herself the day President Trump was sworn into office documenting former President Barack Obama's guidance at a high-level meeting about how law enforcement should investigate Russian interference in the 2016 presidential race, according to two Republican senators earlier today. Senator uh, or Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley and Senator Lindsey Graham uh, said that the partially unclassified email was sent, partially unclassified, hmm, was sent by Rice on January 20th, 2017, Inauguration Day, everybody and appears to document a January 5th meeting that included Obama, then FBI Director James Comey, then Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates, then Vice President Joe Biden and Rice, also known as a meeting of the five families of the resistance. Who's carving up what territory for the Russia collusion narrative? Uh, Turns out this is an email that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. I don't know if my godfather impression there even really came through. It just sounded like I was having some kind of a, an event over here. But uh, here's what's going on in this email. Rice wrote that, quote, Obama wants to be sure that as we engage with the incoming team, we are mindful to ascertain if there's any reason we cannot share information fully as it relates to Russia. Now, this goes in the, uh, excuse me, that's not your call. It's not how it works, right? Yeah. For for example, you can't have one president who's like, well, we've got some super secret covert action thing we're doing and like, you know, the new president doesn't get to know about it. Nope. That that That's not how this game goes. Or maybe they think it does, but that's not legitimate. That's not, uh, that's not ethical or legal. Um, they don't have the right to do that. And yet she seemed to think that they did, which is quite strange, isn't it, for a National Security Advisor. Um, And then there's more. And this is the part of it that is, in fact, the weirdest. And this this falls into the category of, and remember, Susan Rice, very close to Barack Obama personally as well. She wrote the following. President Obama began the conversation. This is about her meeting with Comey, Yates, Biden, Rice. Okay, this is all, all those. Yeah, all those names, right? Yates hates Trump. Comey hates Trump. Biden is Biden. Rice hates Trump, right? Hmm. Isn't it interesting that they would have all had a meeting about Russia collusion where they're trying. It's almost like they're trying to get on the same sheet of music about, you know, what, 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 what's going to happen now? Because they maybe were assuming they were going to be in charge. And so 
now not only they're not in charge of that investigation with the Hillary presidency, but also what do they do about the stuff that was done before when they were assuming Hillary was going to be president? How do you cover the tracks, my friends? How do you make all the all the sketchy stuff you did go away? It's tough to cover your tracks. It's tough to you know, you got to do things like delete 30,000 emails and use BleachBit on a server and set up a home server and send emails with such reckless disregard for what's contained in them that they end up on a convicted pedophile's laptop that is married to, you know, who's married to your top aide. I mean, those are the sorts of things. And one does when one is trying to cover up something. But so we have this email that that she writes to herself, mind you, which I would note is a way of establishing a record it's almost like establishing an alibi right this to me strikes me as this strikes me as the equivalent of you know showing up to the bar at midnight like hey everybody my name is buck sexton i'm in this bar note the time note the time it is midnight it is midnight and i will not be on the other side of town in 15 minutes or so committing a heinous crime because we're just going to assume that i've established my alibi and you know there you have it Here's what Rice writes in this email. President Obama began the conversation by stressing his continued commitment to ensuring that every aspect of this issue, Russia collusion, everybody, is handled by the intelligence and law enforcement communities by the book. The president stressed that he is not asking about initiating or instructing anything from a law enforcement perspective. He reiterated that our law enforcement team needs to proceed as it normally would by the book. She repeated by the book twice. Uh, I think I think you guys are all seeing what I'm putting down here. It's a little convenient, isn't it? A little, a little strange. It's almost like she's trying to create a trail that would support the case if, in fact, things started to go awry, if the DOJ could no longer run interference for the anti-Trumpers, if we started to get to the truth. Like, say, if we found out that the Fusion GPS dossier was, in fact, paid for by Hillary Clinton and the DNC, if it became increasingly clear that James Comey is really first and foremost concerned with himself and his power, and he was willing to break the rules in favor of Hillary and break the rules against Trump, it's almost like she's trying to establish here that if everything started to fall apart, uh, well, look at this email. President Obama, on his last day in office, folks, or last days, this was written on the last day. She wrote this in the last day in reference to an earlier meeting, but in the, in the very final moments of this administration, after eight years, Obama just wanted everyone to know it's all done by the book. There's been no political bias here at all. Oh, I think we all know that Susan Rice doth protest the by the book too much this is as we would say on in my, in my neck the words this strikes me as quite shady my friends this is very weird and when you add it into everything else that we're finding out everything else that is going on around this russia collusion narrative it is increasingly clear to me that what we are facing is in fact the most sweeping egregious and corrupt political hit ever in modern American history. That's what this was. Cooked up by people with power and influence who did not want to see either of those things go away if Hillary lost and who hate Trump and everything he stands for. 
And we are getting closer. We're getting closer to be able to prove all of this. So a uh, very interesting piece up on foxnews.com. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. We have much more coming up, my friends. We will be right back. Absolutely, James Comey should be back to give answers to the Congress about why his prior testimony was not truthful. Uh, He was making claims about the dossier before Congress that now, through the investigation and discovery of evidence, we know uh, may not have been accurate regarding what he was doing. The House of Representatives has subpoena power, and we absolutely could subpoena James Comey. He's sort of gone from the hero of the left to the demon of the left, now to, like, you know, the greatest troll on Twitter. So I suspect (laughs) that it would be better to have him before the Congress answering questions about what in the world was going on that allowed cash at a political party to be convertible into a government-sponsored warrant to spy on Donald Trump's transition team. I want to hear Comey answer some questions under oath about all this stuff, too, now that we have more information. I want to see smug Comey sit there and simmer a bit. I'd like to see what that's like. A bit of of, uh, sizzling Comey on the hot seat. It would be, you know... Although the smugness may overtake the whole room, like Comey's cloud of smug may just may cause an evacuation. They just can't handle it. It's just too much for them. I was just noting with the guys before we got into a break, I said, you know, this whole Susan Rice email where, you know, Obama said buy the book, just buy the book, totally buy the book, which was written, as I said, uh, which was written on or written and sent on January 20th, 2017. So, and and documenting a January 5th meeting, but on the very last day where, where she would be, you know, where the the transition has happened, that was inauguration day, right? Or it was close to it. It was within a day or two of that. This would be the equivalent of all of a sudden, if I were out with, let's say, Mike and John, neither you guys like me, you're unmarried, right? Unmarried as of yet. Okay. We're working on it though, guys, all three of us. So if we were out and, but we had wives. And all of us, all of a sudden, had all these text messages about how we had a guy's night. But, you know, we, we, weren't, we weren't at the casino or anything. I'm so glad. And, and all the text messages said the same thing to each other. I'm so glad, guys, that we didn't go to the casino uh, or, or the, you know, gentleman's club afterwards because that would have been so bad. Yeah, I'm so glad we didn't make that decision. It would have been such a bad decision to make to do that thing. We just hung out and ate cheeseburgers, you know. Some of the, I, I assume, our, our uh, theoretical wives would find that a bit suspicious. <laughs> why are you guys just writing yourself? A, why are you creating this strange record, this this archive, if you will, of, of how great and righteous you were last night? That doesn't really seem necessary. Unless you're hiding something. See what I mean? Why is Susan Rice writing to herself, you know, oh, Obama wanted everything by the book. Oh, it has to be so by the book. Hmm. And by the way, Comey was in that meeting. We know how by the book Comey really is, right? Comey was Mr. America's uh, greatest G-man. And then he decided to, like, leak some stuff to the New York Times and get an investigation started on a sitting president out of spite. So maybe we should start rethinking all these uh, wonderful and decent public servants like Rice and Comey and others. The president doesn't want the public to see the underlying facts Uh, What is revealed in our memo are quotations from the very FISA application that really demonstrate just how misleading the Republicans have been. Their goal here is to put the FBI on trial, to put Bob Mueller's investigation on trial, and the president is only too happy to accommodate. 
Republicans voted in the Congress to release both the Republican and Democrat memo. Democrats only voted to release their memo. So there is enormous hypocrisy here. This is all political. What this really is, is they, they intentionally put sources and methods in the document, knowing that the White House wouldn't be able to release it. And then they could they could basically go on TV and say that we were editing the document. But I think the president made the right decision to say, look, if that's the game you're going to play, I'm going to send it back to you. You clean it up. You work with the FBI, send it back to us, and we'll be happy to release it. I believe I said exactly that would happen here on the show, that the Democrats would seed their memo with intentionally classified. Remember, we had this whole conversation. They'll just write. So then this guy, super secret squirrel, did this super secret squirrel thing and then more super secret squirrel. And they'd have to black out all of that. That would be redacted. It would be classified or there'd be a need to redact it. You could not release that out there as it was. And that's a way of making it seem as though Republicans don't want the facts to come out, they don't want the truth to be shared with the American people when, as was pointed out there, that was Schiff versus Short. Uh, Adam Schiff, whom you all know, of course, the Democrats, it's tough to call him an attack dog, you know? He's more like, uh, he seems a bit more reptilian, right? So he's more like an attack iguana, perhaps? I don't know. Um, I like dogs. I don't like to say Adam Schiff is an attack dog. But uh, Mark Short, the White House legislative director, was the one responding there. And he's just saying, look, they wouldn't even vote to release the original memo, which had nothing classified in it, and which the FBI at the senior level and the Democrats just flat out lied. Remember I told you it's good to know when there's lies? There, there is no way, there is no way that, that, that anybody who had any familiarity with the laws and regulations around classified information would have thought that the Republican memo was a problem. So everyone who saw it and said otherwise, a liar. There's lying to you. I would note also, you lie to the FBI, you go to prison. FBI lies to all the American people. Meh. You know, stuff. Apparently not a big deal. So will we see this Democrat memo or not? I think we clearly will. um, But the game has already been put into place here. And they're going to say, no matter what's in this memo now... If it's not potent enough, and I think it really won't be, they're going to say, well, the really good stuff, the really juicy stuff was removed by those big, bad, mean Republicans who don't want to know the truth about the FISA application on on Carter Page. As I've said to you, if they had really strong stuff on Carter Page, two things would be true. One, they wouldn't have needed to include the dossier at all. Two, it would have leaked. We would know. If there was some guy somewhere who was tight with Putin, who was, you know, a a senior FSB officer or something who was talking to Carter Page, we would have heard. I'm sorry. They can get the Never Trump hashtag resistance squad inside of the, the Department of Justice or the FBI or maybe even the CIA. Some very interesting stuff coming out about former agency director Brennan recently. He said some very, some quite strange stuff. I would note, it's been forgotten that he, Brennan's very tight with Obama. And he wasn't just a CIA director. He, he's a political infighter and is known to be a very partisan guy. And has a reputation for leaking stuff to the media, too. By the way, and not a reputation just from people in the media. Some other folks I know are like, yeah, Brennan leaks. But Here's the thing. As we continue to 
look at the Carter Page FISA warrant as we see what's around it. If there was good information, as I said, they would have needed the dossier. And if there was good information, we would have already heard because they would have leaked it to the Washington Post or somewhere else. Even more than that, though. And then we got a whole nother level that comes into play here. Okay, so let's say they did have some good reason to or, or some reasonable reason to monitor Carter Page's communications. What does that say about the FISA process? Because I, I could come up with a hundred different reasons why a lot of people I know in the press could fall under a FISA, could fall under a FISA warrant. You know, I, I could think of a lot of different reasons why different people I know in the media that talk to have you know foreign sources or try to talk to even openly or not openly but try to uh, approach you know foreign military, foreign intelligence to get information for their stories. Are they all subject to FISA? Because from what I'm seeing, Carter Page establishes a precedent here, everybody, that if the federal government, and by that I really mean the deep state Democrats who like to abuse the federal government's powers for stuff like this, if they decide that they want to monitor your communications and therefore the communications of really everyone you're in touch with, because that's what it means, they can find a pretext to do it. It's not hard. What does the Fourth Amendment really even mean then? This is a very important concept that uh, I want to bring into our discussion here in the show. It's something I want you to keep in mind. And that is that mass surveillance is unsettling, but ruthless individual surveillance, right? Individual surveillance that is really targeted, that breaks down Fourth Amendment protection. That's That's what's actually terrifying. Yeah, okay, if they if they're getting all of your stuff and they're they're getting the metadata and all that, that's that's bad. But if they can target people for political reasons and look at all their communications, I mean if our own federal government can do that, I mean folks, founding fathers went to war over general warrants, right? They were like going through the customs house looking for stuff and trying to tax you more. We we're we're gonna be okay with a situation where the federal government can decide that that literally a presidential candidate can be surveilled by finding someone near him for whom they can create some pretext for that surveillance. And we're supposed to be okay with that? Think about this. Carter Page is the way of getting to everybody on the Trump campaign. I know I've read the the reports at least that you know Steve Bannon was caught up in that surveillance then. I mean, yeah. I I really want to know. I want to know who I don't know what. If I'm Carter Page, by the way, I mean, this is another way to go. I don't know if he'd be willing to do this. If I'm Carter Page, then maybe I would say, you know what? I want the federal government to release all of the surveillance information on me. Because I don't believe he does have anything to hide. I don't. I, I think that, you know, he could say, show all the communication, show everything that's out there. You know, all the different contacts that I had. And you'll see it's all nothings, nothingsville. It's, it's who cares. But it would matter to us a lot because it would show us that this was, like I said, a political hit. And the Democrats know that if the American people really figure this out, they will hold it against the Democrat Party as they should for a very, very long time. And, you know. I, I just see what's going on here with this Carter Page thing. Adam Schiff's defense right now, the Democrats' defense is, oh, no, there's other stuff that l- made it okay for us 
to target this Carter Page guy who was on the FBI's radar. And that was the big thing they were saying. Yeah, he was on the FBI's radar before and he worked with the FBI to help them track down some some shady Russians. So apparently the thanks he gets for that is that the FBI later on is is miking him up, so to speak. But if he's such a bad guy, if he was doing shady things, can I just see one criminal charge even mentioned? Never mind brought. Just the basis of an indictment, maybe, against Carter Page? If they can target his communications and everyone who talked to him, therefore, indirectly surveilling them, too, that's the way this works. Based on on suspicion, with no, there's no charges. What, what, what does this mean, folks? Where are the limits, really? Where are the lines, the boundaries that prevent the federal government from doing this the next time around? And here's a really scary thought. All this stuff that we're talking about here, it's all kind of jammed up in the world, the classified and everything else. This might have happened in other cases we don't even know about. Oh, that, no, that's beyond. They'll, they'll do it to a presidential campaign, but they wouldn't. Oh, they'd never do it to some, Come on. Let's really think about this one. You don't think that maybe uh, some senior folks at DOJ want to keep an eye on somebody else somewhere? Now you start getting into some, you know, we'd like to think that we're beyond the realm of police state tactics and the surveillance state and, and using that for, you know, the Russians are the ones who do compromat. The Russians are the ones who put video cameras in people's hotel rooms just to catch them doing what people do and then, you know, threaten to release that to embarrass them, right? That's like the Russians. We wouldn't, I mean, we wouldn't do that in this country. I mean, the DOJ, FBI, they wouldn't do that. Are you sure? I'm a lot less sure now than I used to be. And I used to work on the inside. So that does not speak well about this whole situation. 844-900-2825. you got thoughts on this. We are going to get into the whole North Korea media debacle. Wow. That's going to be quite a discussion. So stick around for that. We'll be right back. Welcome back, team. Let's take a call from Tom in Youngstown, Ohio. Hey, Tom. Hi, Buck. Good afternoon. Uh, Two things. Number one, uh, you mentioned uh, Carter Page, and and you were uh, supposing that uh, as a result of uh, using the FISA warrant against him, they could do it against different groups, and you included the press. They did it against the press. Remember James Rosen and his parents? They used the FISA warrant to monitor them. I think that was a title... uh... Uh, I, th- I think that was a, a criminal. I think that was a, a criminal warrant. I don't think they used. I don't oh, believe okay. that was. I don't believe that was a FISA warrant, from what I know. I think it was a criminal warrant. But they, but they went after the press anyway, based on the press doing their job. They also, right. they also seized the Associated Press's records. So the well, the Obama administration had a pass to do, uh, to to break down that wall. Which look, it's always a little bit murky, but they just shattered it. Of you don't go after journalists for doing their jobs. Obama's folks did it, and people did not care. I mean, when I mean people, oh, exactly. the media did remember, not care. Remember uh, 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 the uh, attorney general telling uh, uh, Cheryl Atkinson that uh, she could no longer go to the uh, into the Justice Department, uh, and and uh, that was her job. So she was basically out of a job at CBS. Uh, wait, what did she do at the Justice Department? 
Under Eric Holder. Remember, remember, she was the Justice Department correspondent for oh, CBS. Oh, yeah. And Eric Holder. Yeah, she was exposing. Justice Department. Yeah, Cheryl Atkinson was exposing some of the stuff that the uh, the Holder DOJ was up to, and they did not like that over it. She was a, like a career CBS reporter. She'd been there a very long time and was very well regarded. And all of a sudden, she's gone. Yeah. Hey, uh, one other thing. You mentioned Susan Rice and that uh, uh, Obama said to go by Yeah, the book. Susan Rice. She's by the book. She's all by yeah, the book. Well, the, Only yeah. by the book. The book happened to be Rules for Radicals that, that he wanted them to go by. I like what you I like what you did there, Tom. Shields high, and thank you very much for the call, my friend. Speaking of I like what you did there, uh, we got our friend, uh, Representative Louis Gohmert. I am shocked, really shocked, that no FISA judge has put anybody in jail yet, yet we have found total disregard for a propriety before the FISA courts. And somebody should have been in jail long before now over the, uh, the over the uh, improprieties that were submitted to the court. Somebody's got to go to jail or our system is over. Yep. It is done. All right. Rule of law mean anything Louis Gohmert. Congressman Gohmert. I like Congressman Gohmert, by the way. I've been a bunch of times. He's a, fun, he's a fun dude. I like him. But uh, I think he's wrong here. No one's going, no one's going to prison. And I, I know I say that, and I can already I, people are like click. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go listen to somebody who's like, they're all going to jail. Everybody, it's all coming down. Comey's gonna get frog marched. Nope, it's not gonna happen, folks. I'm not saying we won't get to the truth. I'm not saying there won't be any consequences, but it is overwhelmingly likely, in my opinion, it will be political consequences. Understand who we're talking about here, who we're dealing with. People that know what you can do that's unethical. Versus what you can do or what you would do that is prosecutable, right? Although I will say James Comey with the classified thing, that to me, I don't know how he's getting a pass on that one. Meaning Comey had notes from meeting with the White House that at least one senator, I think it was Grassley, but I forget now. One senator has said the information was classified. Comey leaked it to the, the press. That's a that's a crime. You're not allowed to do that. But somehow everyone's like, yeah, it's, Co- it's Comey. And then, you know, Comey's out there. I stare across the crystal clear lake, finding that truth, justice, and the American way grows with each beat of my heart. Comey is such a weirdo. I mean, if you look at his, if you're not on Twitter, you should get on Twitter just to see what I'm talking about with Comey. You're going to be like, who is this guy? He's like 6'9". I bet he can't even dunk. I bet he never could dunk. That's right. I said it. So he's like 6'11". If you're 6'11", you should be able to dunk, darn it. Uh, but yeah, Comey's a big weirdo. Oh, by the way, the uh, literally a large weirdo. Uh, top Justice Department official that quit. <laughs> Look, I, I can understand this one. She quit over, quote, fear she might be asked to oversee Russia probe. Uh, Rachel Brand was her name, Associate Attorney General. And uh, I got to tell you, you know what? I'm, she's probably a Democrat. You know, she's probably standing with Hillary, so to speak, the whole thing. But apart from all that for a moment, you got to assume you really don't want that job. You, you really don't want to be the person overseeing the DOJ uh, investigation at this at this point of Russia because you're going to be in a rough spot no matter what. Unless you're a true ideologue who wants to use this, to continue to use this as the primary means of uh, going after the Trump administration. And you're willing to take the heat that comes along with that because we're finding out now much more of what's true and what really happened and what was really going on with all this. But uh, yeah, that's not a job that I would be like running to sign up for. Yes. I would, I would love to be the person who depending on the day 
is going to get trashed by one network or the other based on whatever moves she makes. So I'm, I'm thinking this memo, do we have a, we, we don't know yet, right? This week, maybe? Yeah, I'm not talking, producer Mike is telling me maybe this week, but we're, we're not sure yet. Um, it looks like it, it, some version of it will be released. As I said to you, they've already played the classification games, which I knew would happen. I think the memo is going to be underwhelming. I mean, the fact that it's 10 pages also just seems strange to me. Why do you need a 10-page memo to refute the four pages of what was already released? Uh, but it's not going to stop. It's not going to stop anything. We need to find more information anyway. I I get kind of radical on this one, and people get mad at me. Like, Buck, you don't understand the sensitivity of sources and methods. Yeah, I know I do. I, I get it. But I get radical insofar as I want, I want the president to just... Put it, I want it to be put out there. And what are we really going to find out? Carter Page talked to some shady Russian dudes? You know, okay. In, unless we're really worried about the safety of those specific Russians. By the way, could we just uh, block out their last names? Give them pseudonyms. You know, give them fake names. Who cares? But just let's see what they're really working with here. You know, that would be it. You know, call one... Uh, you know, person A and the other person B. You know, person A spoke to Carter Page. Person B met with him here. You know, you can still protect the, the identities and the safety of individuals that may be. And I'm assuming there are people. I'm not even sure there is anybody. I think it's like the dossier and then some news reports. And then, oh, yeah, the FBI knew that he talked to some Russians years ago and he helped them. But maybe he was still shady. You know, I don't know. Not a lot. Not a lot here that I think could be a big, a big problem. You know, I mean, Carter Page wasn't like, uh, you know, a, a, an agent living in deep cover in bin Laden's house or something. And if, if anyone finds out, you know, like that's not what was happening here, folks. So anyway, we're going to get into the North Korea thing here because this is you're going to enjoy this one. I mean, it's on the one hand kind of terrifying how delusional the media really is in that they seem to believe that Trump is pretty much on the same plane as Kim Jong-un. I mean, there's reason that... I'll make the case as to why I think they think that. Stay with me. Kim Jong-un's sister, Kim Yo-jong, sitting uh, nearly directly behind the vice president of the United States. It uh, provides legitimacy. Oh, it's absolutely significant. The symbolism. She's about to emerge on the world's largest television stage. Her star has risen meteorically over the past four years. Kim Yo-jong is the real power just under her brother. With the world watching the Olympics, she will put a young, telegenic face on the regime. Uh, It's a way to showcase North Korea on a world stage. Kim Yo-jong is the perfect counterpart to this. And it also is a signal that North Korea is not, um, you know, this crazy, weird um, former Cold War state, but that it too has young women that are capable and are the future leadership. Welcome to Hour 2 of the Buck Sexton Show. That was a whole bunch of reporting. I think it was from CNN, but from mostly, yeah, CNN, uh, about, about a regime that is, in fact, a, a ghoulish relic of the Soviet era um, that is the most totalitarian and brutal and repressive government on the planet. And yet the press coverage of a woman who is directly involved in that apparatus is like, yeah, look at her. She's telegenic and great. And what a moment for North Korea. Uh There is no way to make sense of how the media could be so foolish 
in their coverage of North Korea, North Korea without understanding that really this is, at least in part, about Trump. And I'm not just coming up with that. It's quite clear. There were comparisons in the media between Kim Yo-jong and, remember, that's the, that's the sister of Kim Jong-un. Kim Yo-jong is also in the Politburo, the senior communist uh, senior communist entity that runs North Korea. Uh, she is the head of propaganda for the North Korean regime. She is personally, technically her title is Director of the Propaganda and Agitation Department of the Workers' Party of Korea. That sounds like a fun place to show up to work. And she is overseeing the brainwashing and psychological terror apparatus of the North Korean state. That's who this woman is, that they're all like, oh, she's amazing. What are you wearing? Is that Dior? Is that Chanel? Well, when she goes back home, there will still be the multi-generational concentration camps where North Korean intelligence and military agents force children to inform on their parents' political beliefs inside these camps, and then the parents are uh, mutilated and tortured to death on the evidence provided by their own children. That's North Korea. You didn't really get that sense of it, though, from CNN's media coverage of it, and in fact, they were all too quick, and it wasn't just CNN, it was New York Times, too, there were a number of them. They were all too quick to talk about how North Korea was winning a gold medal for diplomacy. To compare Kim Yo-jung, who I just gave you some stats on, sanctioned by the Treasury Department, by the way. That'll, that gets everybody excited at the dinner party. Hey, I just got my Treasury Department sanctioned for crimes against humanity. How's your day going? They compare her to Ivanka Trump. They're saying she's the Ivanka of North Korea, which is quite a slight. If you don't think that's a slight, imagine for one moment that it was not the Trump administration. We were talking about the Obama administration and any member of the press had ever, even for a moment, made a comparison between an active member of North Korea's uh, apparatus of terror, repression and murder with a member of Barack Obama's family. Right. Yeah, if someone had said Kim Yo-jung has any similarity to Michelle Obama, for example, in any way, I think people would have lost their minds. And, and I would agree with that, actually. But you'll just note that with Ivanka, it's like, yeah, you know, young, telegenic, one's a part of a homicidal, maniacal regime, and, you know, the other is a Wharton grad who is an advisor to her dad in the White House and has like a, you know... Some nice kids and is a nice person is trying to be a part of the U.S. administration. I mean, I'm sort of, where's the comparison exactly? But they were saying that. Oh, yeah, she's the Ivanka of, of North Korea. Uh, there also was a particularly, uh, a particularly annoying thing done by, I think it was, the, I think this one was the New York Times, where they, they compared... Pence's diplomacy to Kim Yo-jung's diplomacy in order to make it seem like Kim Yo-jung, Kim Jong-un's sister, is the one who, you know, really gets it. You know, she's the savvy diplomat. Pence is just some rube, some, you know, 
some hayseed, some hillbilly. He doesn't, he doesn't get it. Yeah, they thought that uh, she came off better in the comparison of the two. I'm trying to find the—I mean, I, I, I'm just so you get a sense of exactly whether or not I'm—I'm—I'm uh, I'm, I'm exaggerating here. Or anything else? The press has called North Korea's uh, North North Korea's efforts at the Olympics a charm offensive. Okay, fine. But they've also written headlines like this one from the New York Times: Kim Jong Un's sister turns on the charm, taking Pence's spotlight. Hmm. And as I said, the the Times referred to uh, North Korea's Ivanka. Uh, This is some pretty heinous stuff, folks. When you get into what North Korea is really like, what the regime is all about, you you can complain about the Trump administration. You can think they're terrible. You know, this is America. You're allowed to have you're allowed to have dumb political opinions. Many millions of our fellow Americans do. But if you think that there is any moral equivalency or any comparison to be drawn between any member of the Trump administration or the Republican Party and what is going on in North Korea, you are, in fact, a, a dangerous moron. Um, it, it, is, it is aggressively stupid to draw any comparisons or parallels between our, our government, our administration, Donald Trump, and North Korea, and people were doing it. I mean, I'm giving you the big newspapers and news sites out there. I mean, some of the the largest, the, the most mainstream of the mainstream media. But once you get into the opinion level, the opinion sections, and you know the commentariat on Twitter and elsewhere, the the blue check peanut gallery, they're all, oh yeah, you know, well Trump, North Korea is better at this diplomacy thing than Trump. You know, Trump is so terrible; he's the worst. Trump's guilty of American fascism. North Korea just has its own version of, people say communism, but it's really more like a, uh, more like a religious cult than communism. But that's a different discussion. They were uh, delusional, and then there, there was just some other little aspects of how they approached North Korea. Like for example, the North Korean cheer squad. So they all were dressed exactly the same and moving in complete unison. And here's what it sounded like. the North Korean cheerleaders who were going, I mean, I've never seen anything like that. First they started, they were cheering one Korea. Then they were cheering win, win, win. It was a remarkable scene. It really was. Look, a sports commentator, I get that was Mary Carroll on NBC. Look, she's allowed to say whatever she wants, and she's also just saying that it was a remarkable scene. That's fine. I have no problem with that. It's the political press. It's the, the newspapers out there that are talking about the diplomacy and the effectiveness of North, North Korean diplomacy here that I think was particularly egregious. And I think it's only uh, their blind spots on this issue or their the obtuse nature of the media's coverage such that they wouldn't seem or they wouldn't decide it was necessary to point out that, yes, the North Korea cheer squad at the Olympics moved in with tremendous precision and everything else probably because they were threatened with constant beatings at home. And that's not an exaggeration if they didn't get it exactly right. 
Maybe worse than beatings. Maybe the starvation of their families. If you haven't seen it, I mean, there are a series of documentaries on North Korea that are all, that are actually quite good. There's one in particular where they bring in doctors from the uh, outside uh, outside North Korea's borders. I forget. I saw it many years ago. And they bring in all these doctors, and they're fixing eye problems. A lot of cataracts, I believe, which is a pretty straightforward surgery. But if you don't get the surgery, you, you go blind. And so they're, re- they're actually restoring sight to North Koreans, and they're foreign doctors that are doing this because North Korean medicine is obviously garbage, barely exists. And but they're just trying to bring in as many of these uh, as many of these doctors or as many patients, these doctors as possible. And they're literally people have been blind, some of them for years. And now they're able to see again because their eyes are fine. They're just covered because of the cataracts. And what's remarkable in the and I'm kind of giving away where the documentary goes here is that you have people whose sight has been restored by the doctor. And they all know they all know right away. Once they can see again, they don't say thank you to the doctor. They don't hug the doctor. They turn, they kneel, they grovel, they cry, and they beg for thanks from a portrait of, it was at the time, Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-un's father, on the wall. Yeah, forget about the doctor that actually, like, changed my life. Thank you, dear leader. Oh, dear leader, you're so amazing. And here's what's even more sick about it. I can't blame them at all. Not only are they brainwashed, they know that if they give insufficient thanks, especially because there are foreigners present, it might be off to the might be off to the concentration camp for them. For insufficient thanks, for insufficiently saying thank you to the dear leader who has created this environment in the country where, you know, the, the Kim dynasty where people are unable to get medical care or starving or living under complete tyranny and oppression. And you would think that this context would inform some of the way that seasoned journalists from the New York Times, CNN, etc., would discuss the North Korean propaganda offensive at the Olympics, because that's what it is. Nothing has changed, folks. This is not a big thaw in relations. They're not going to be buddies after this. North Korea is not going to give up its nuclear program. They're not going to stop testing missiles. Okay, not going to happen. In fact, the ignorance of the media about North Korea was particularly on display when it came to the signature of Kim Jo Young, uh, or Kim Yo Jung rather, who was making some, you know, make, writing down some remarks about a unified Korea, looking forward to a unified Korea in the future, and a lot of press were like, "See, it's this is great. This is like the unified Korea, and they're marching under unified flag." Well, for decades now. North Korea has been talking about a unified Korea. It will come through either submission or conquest. That is it. It's going to be unified under the North Korean model, not the South Korean model. And the North Koreans would be all too happy if they could to do that by force. In fact, I think you could make a very convincing argument that the entire structure of the North Korean state exists so that it can take over South Korea. It's just at some point in the future. And its nuclear program is not just an external deterrent, but to blackmail the South into eventually being subsumed into the North. But the journalists don't. They're like, oh, the warm greeting she wrote. It was so nice about a unified Korea. Oof. They, they are, but they are uncurious about this. Why? Because they view it as, in some ways, an opportunity to take uh, cheap shots at Trump, which is what happened. Um, and also, whenever the current administration is involved, whenever there's a question of foreign policy, anything like that's at issue, 
it has to be taken. The, the issue must be put in the context of, well, Trump is really bad, too, you see. So we can't really blame this country for acting the way that it does because Trump. Trump derangement syndrome is a very real thing, and it has infected the minds of the media more so than even many of our, you know, everyday American leftists that are around us, especially in places like New York City, where I'm doing this show right now. So it was uh, disconcerting to see it. Um, It's not something that we should excuse or allow. I mean, it's fine to report on North Korea's Olympic cheer squads, as weird and unsettling as they are. Um, But no matter how much they hate Trump, the media never has an excuse to be a North Korean cheer squad. And that's what we saw over the weekend, and it was pathetic. It was pathetic. They they, they will slam the vice president of the United States while praising the sister and enabler of the worst dictator on the planet and think that somehow that's normal. We don't pick up on this. They are an embarrassment. We will be right back. We have supported regimes like this, like Russia, for many, many years and that are still doing it. And so it's very interesting that he didn't take a knee because you wouldn't have known if he was paying homage because taking a knee is not disrespectful, you know, because you can you can Mm -hmm. take a knee to propose to somebody, Mm -hmm. take a knee to 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 pray to somebody. So I think him not taking a knee, what him sitting down was more Mm -hmm. of the nonverbal spit in your face. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that he didn't do it. reveres Russia so much over the United States very often. And so it's kind of hypocritical for Pence. Uh, All I hear from Trump is how great Russia is. He never says a bad word about Putin. That really is (laughs) un-American. I mean, those are some, those are the different opinions you get on on The View uh, (laughs) about about North Korea and Russia. And look, to be fair, it's a little bit like, you know, asking the Kardashians for uh, their their thesis on nuclear physics in the 21st century. I mean, it's it's a little beyond. You know, this is the this is a little beyond. I think the uh, the wheelhouse you could say of Joy Behar. You know, Trump reveres Russia, and you know, it's it's just un-American. And and you've got uh, I I don't know who the host was, but uh, saying that Pence sitting down was a nonverbal spit on your face. <laughs> Let's just look at the other side of this. If Pence was walking up to North Korea's emissary to the Olympics being all chummy, what do we think what do we think the media's response to that would be? Oh, he's being the bigger man, he's really taking the long view. It's really amazing the kind of diplomatic acumen that Mike Pence brings to the scene here. Look at Look at what he's doing. He's a great statesman. You know, he's looks like a like a leading man in Hollywood and has the the diplomatic tact of Henry Kissinger. Eh. They'd be like, oh, my gosh, Mike Pence is like loves North Korea. And he's like so evil. And I'm like sad. I'm like literally shaking right now because of what Mike Pence just did with North Korea. That is what they would do. I mean, maybe not in those exact words or tone, but pretty close to that. So we know they're just looking for a, a chance to take take shots at Pence, but let's understand that this is in the context of some really serious stuff. Um, and, you know, the the media's fangirling over North Korea's so-called charm offensive is a real embarrassment for this country. And I would say it's embarrassing for places like CNN and the New York Times, but I don't know if they're even capable of it anymore. 
I don't know if, if, if they're capable of feeling ashamed of the way that they cover issues and the way that they are uh, so skewed in their approach to all this. I mean, Trump has thrown them so, uh, Trump has made them so unhinged that nothing is, uh, for, for them, there's no issue you can look at and say, well, you know, we can all agree that that's worse, you know, that, guy, that guy's worse than Trump. They, they act like they have discovered uh, with this Kim Jong-un emissary, the sister of Kim Jong-un, Kim Yo-jung, uh, they have discovered some new opening with North Korea. It's just all a lie. It's all crap. North Korea is the most evil despotism on the planet and that they don't understand this and that they would allow. Remember, they are enabling. You want to talk about being complicit. They are enabling North Korea's propaganda to be more effective. What message is this sending to our South Korean allies who are looking at this like, I mean, I guess they're allowed to be at the Olympics, but, you know, let's not. Let's not all take a knee for them, right? Let's not all kneel in front of them. What are the messages that are being sent here? Well, first and foremost, the media hates Trump more than Kim Jong-un. Other shows just talk at you. In the Freedom Hut, we have a mission. All right, we, are we fight for the truth in a team effort. Roger, roger. And Buck is back with our next play. All right, here's Buck. Got some lines lit. Let's take Steve in New York. Hey, Steve. Hey, Shield Tide, Buck. Thanks for taking my call. Shield Tide, buddy. Appreciate it. Uh, I just had a quick question for you. I wanted to get your perspective as a, a former member of the NYPD about uh, do, you, do you believe the Trump administration has started to repair some of the damages done between um, American law enforcement and uh, the American public, some of the stuff that was done under the, uh, the Obama administration, or is that an issue that's yet to have been tackled? I, I think absolutely. I mean, I think if nothing else, Trump has verbalized a restoration of respect for law enforcement that was very much needed. Look, look we, we were, and I remember seeing the rallies, and, and I remember hearing President Obama, the way he would speak about law enforcement, it was, you know, he'd say, yeah, we like law enforcement, but, you know, there's a lot of bad stuff and distrust, and there's a lot of racism. And, and it was always, whoa, you know, hold, hold on a second. And that was, the the media narrative was that police forces across the country were full of, of uh of, of systematically racist uh, procedures and racist officers, and it was very damaging. And, I mean, I will never forget the night of uh, the, well, the conflagrations in uh, in Ferguson, and I also remember the, the nights of the riots in, in Baltimore, and the way the media was covering it, there was a lot of like, yeah, you know, this is... This is because law enforcement does bad stuff. I'm like, no, people aren't looting a CVS because of what law enforcement did. And I think it was very damaging. And, and the Obama administration played really, uh, really dirty politics with this issue. And Trump is restoring it. Now, there is one little wrinkle here or one interesting un- unanticipated shift. And that is that the press is now, I mean, they still think the cops are basically, you know, a, a lot of them are racist. That's what the media thinks. They think a lot of cops are racist. And by the way, including uh, officers who are black and Latino themselves, right? They're part of the racist problem, too. It's not just, oh, the white cops are racist. It's just cops in general are racist. That's one of the media narratives. 
But the, the thing with the FBI is really funny because now all of a sudden you've got the major media outlets who are like, oh, the FBI is beyond suspicion. You know, the FBI would never do anything wrong. I didn't realize the FBI was uh, was basically perfect. You know, it's, some of the FBI guys must be feeling like, hey, CNN likes us all of a sudden. But they know because they're FBI guys that CNN's going to hate them as soon as it's they go back to their usual. Right. But so that's the only thing I think, Steve, that people weren't expecting. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. No, I just as a, as a fellow law enforcement officer, I, I, I see it's nice to have to have kind of bounced back from that. You know, five officers down in the last five days, as many. I mean, it's 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 becoming a problem, but it definitely seems like it's going. Yeah, uh, I think Trump's on the right track. And yeah, down. thoughts and prayers to the families, of those officers who were lost in line of duty. And uh, Steve Shields, High, Thank you very much for calling in. So, you know, I, here's where I am on the uh, on the Rob Porter issue. And I'm not going to take up much time on this. We've got our friend Sean Parnell, uh, who's an Army Ranger, author, public speaker, just all around great, great dude. He's going to be he's in studio with us. He's going to join us here in just a second. Uh, but I, I did need to address really the way people in the press are so focused on this issue of, of, of Rob Porter. So this was a guy who. As I said, and maybe I'm not paying close enough attention to what's going on inside the White House day in and day out. I didn't even know who he was. I mean, I think I had seen him before in photos and on TV, but like it, it was not, he's not somebody with a job that you're like, oh my gosh, is he qualified? I mean, he's basically handing folders to people. And I know that he has access and he's in the White House and he had an interim security clearance and all that. But I was... And look, if he's a if he's a, uh, a spouse abuser, if he beat his wives, I mean, it's one of the most grotesque things any human being can do. And you know, the, the the guy should, yeah, he should be gone. And if they knew, they never should have hired him. But they're saying they didn't know, and he's also saying he's not guilty. So I, you know, I that's the situation we're in right now. Uh, but the press has made this into. A, a huge national story. Um, and today during the White House press conference, I was, it was, it was pretty remarkable, folks. If you didn't want, and I know most of you have jobs and lives, so you don't sit around like I do watching the White House press conferences. But uh, you figure that with all the things going on in the world, there's a lot of stuff to talk about, a lot of questions that they might want to pose to the administration, many, many things happening in this universe of ours. Here is what it was like during the White House press conference today. It seems like the president was believing Mr. Porter as opposed to his alleged victims. Does he believe I, Rob Porter's accusers or are they lying? Does the president still wish Rob Porter well? Prime candidate for blackmail. And that you have someone like Rob Porter who didn't have a permanent security clearance. And why haven't we heard the president say that he takes domestic violence very seriously? I spoke with the president. Those are actually directly his words that he gave me. I mean, those are, that was just a, a smattering, a selection of the various members of the White House press corps who just, all they want to do is ask more questions about Rob Porter, Rob Porter, Rob Porter. The guy resigned. He's gone. He wasn't important. Who cares at this point? Right? I, I, I don't know. Why does the press care so much? Oh, that's right. Because they have a narrative. They have a storyline that Donald Trump is the abuser in chief. That's what they say. Uh, they actually had a guy over at MSNBC. I saw this over the weekend. He referred to, I mean, this was this was disrespectful and gross, even for MSNBC, which is saying a lot. But one of their analysts at MSNBC referred to Trump as the commander in chief of rape culture. 
let that let that one just sink in there for a second. I mean, really unfounded, disrespectful, and messed up stuff to say. You know, someone who says that tells you a lot more about themselves uh, than they do the president or anything else that's going on. That's just a just an offsides thing to say, man. It was crazy, but that's the narrative. That's the storyline that Trump is the is the uh, you know the commander in chief of the sexual abusers or whatever. It's really heinous, but the media believes it. I'm not just picking up random stuff from the blogs or from a Twitter or something. The media believes it. They think that this is true, and that's why they run with the story. They also then, because they have some awareness that they are really digging into this story a lot, the White House has said over and over again, abuse, you know, domestic abuse is disgusting, it's disgraceful. Trump says it's disgusting and disgraceful. This guy's gone. And they keep saying, well, you know, he said he wished him well. What is he... Is is it now the situation? Is, is it now the expectation that when someone is accused of something, they are to be without proof, or rather without a proceeding? I should say, because I know there was proof. Without a proceeding, uh, they're what is he never allowed to work again? Is he? Everyone has to say that this person's disgusting. They can't talk to him. Uh, irrespective of Rob Porter's innocence or guilt here, that that strikes me as a very troubling standard we're setting up in the public sphere. But they knew they were digging into this story too much, so that's when they started to turn it into, oh, the security clearance. He had an interim security clearance. What's going on with the security clearance? Oh, all this stuff. Look, the security clearance process is is not great, all right? And it's not controlled by the White House either. It's a very, very imperfect system, and, you know, there's only so much they're going to be able to do and find out anyway. They can usually find the really big red flags. Maybe this time they missed something, but trying to blame the White House for security clearance process is like blaming the White House for the, the slow speeds at the DMV or something. It just has nothing to do with anything. The White House is not in charge of security clearances. So they're running with that story because they just want to talk about this more. And I just find the overwhelming disrespect that the media and look the democrat party quite honestly has for this president to be yet another reason to just get alongside him in the trench and be like all right you know well i'm on this team because i just can't take what they're doing on the other side anymore if they're going to put people on tv that call our president the commander-in-chief of rape culture i am going to disregard and or fight against all the other stuff those same people are saying because they're dishonest and they're destructive in their commentary and their thoughts and in what they're trying to spread on the airwaves across the country. So as for the Rob Porter thing, yeah, I don't know the guy. Looks bad to me. He resigned. He's gone. And he's been publicly shamed. That is for sure. Why did the White The number one issue today at the White House press conference was Rob Porter. Beyond everything else. Beyond a trillion dollars of infra- infrastructure spending, beyond the millions of illegal aliens who may be legalized if Congress actually gets together with the Democrats and Republicans, have a deal in place, right, for dreamers. Beyond uh, the difficulties facing our veterans and the VA system, beyond the U.S. troops in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, no, no, let, let's talk about Rob Porter for about 20 or 30 minutes. Let's focus on that. You know, we remember this stuff, folks. This is why when they want to be all serious, big J journalism tomorrow, we'll be like, no, I, I think we know who you are. 
Uh, we're going to be back with uh, my buddy Sean Parnell here in just a second. He is going to talk to us about his new book, as well as we're going to discuss the issue about uh, Afghanistan, what we're doing over there. So uh, stay with me. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Freedom Hunt, everybody. We've got Sean Parnell with us here in studio in New York City. He is a former U.S. Army Airborne Ranger who served in the 10th Mountain Division for six years, retiring as a captain. He received two Bronze Stars and the Purple Heart. He is a passionate supporter of Americans' military. He's the author of the bestseller Outlaw Platoon, which I have on my Kindle and have read on my well, that's, in its entirety. I did not know that. It Most a, hosts was, do not read your book. I know. I'm, this I'm, is a gift. I'm one of these rare hosts who actually reads a lot. You gave me a gift so tonight, th- Buck, and there, I'm thankful for There we go. That. I should have brought my Kindle to really prove it, just to sort of bring it home. I would have signed it. If you haven't, guys, Outlaw Platoon is actually a great book, and, and I would really recommend it to, to all of you. you got a new book coming out. I do, yes. Uh, why don't we talk about that? We're going to keep you through at the top of the hour. We'll talk about some policy stuff, too. But for now, just tell me about the new book. Yeah, so I made the jump from nonfiction to fiction, and I, I wrote, you know, and what I think is a, a, a military thriller uh, about a guy named Eric Steele. Uh, it's faction, right? So uh, it, the whole plot is centered around the disaster of nuclear deal, which is, of course, not just a not just a disaster for us, but a disaster for the entire world. Uh, and and the basic premise is, is that what would happen if they if they de- developed a a man portable nuclear weapon in a vacuum seal, and that weapon just so happened to fall into the wrong hands? How would the United States stop it? Track the weapon? Defeat the threat? And Eric Steele, he's a guy that cut his teeth in Afghanistan fighting jihadists for 15 years in the Special Forces and transitioned to a secret clandestine program called the Alpha Program, where he tracks down and, and neutralizes America's threats on behalf of the president. So he's a guy that that obviously will will eliminate the enemies of America with extreme prejudice, but also believes deeply in the warrior ethos and protecting the innocent. And so Man of War is the title, and that's what the book is about. Which is also, by the way, I believe a very large stingy jellyfish yes it is it is delicious seafood if you're into that sort of thing all right or 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 a in the era of great wooden ships i know man of war but 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 it's also for people like me that get scared at the beach you know it's i i get scared you don't want to get tangled up in a man of war you don't you don't but in this case it refers to a man that was born of war his his entire adult life just like me the only profession i've known has been warrior because we've been we've been at war for over a third of my whole life I know. It's a, I was going to ask you, what is the highest number of deployments at this point that you have heard of? Oh, I mean, it, it really depends what unit you're talking about, but 12. Like, there are guys that are in Ranger units that do three to six-month deployments that do 12. I mean, they'll come back and say they have 18 deployments, you know? But guys in the conventional infantry, if you, that's where you really want to talk about guys that are in a conventional infantry. Ask them how many deployments they have. If they, t- if they say seven or eight deployments a year, and a, half, a year to a year and a half each— that that is like where the rubber meets the road stuff like those old grizzled 20 plus year non-commissioned officers that spend their entire career in the light infantry those those are the guys that the army rides hard and puts away wet and these, guys, these guys are are living a good portion of their lives no in, in downrange Look, man my platoon sergeant his name is greg greason was the best non-commissioned officer that you could ever imagine was in Panama with the 7th Infantry Division. The 7th Infantry Division is not a thing anymore. Like, they deactivated the unit a long time ago. I think they still have a headquarters element somewhere. But he was in Panama, you know? I mean, in the early 90s. He was my platoon sergeant. He was 42, 43 years old when I was a 24-year-old brand-new lieutenant. 
So just to give you a sense of how many deployments this guy has gone through, a career non-commissioned officer, and of course the non-commissioned officers are really the backbone of our military. They're the guys that really make things happen. But yeah, these guys have done a lot. They've been there, done that, and they've got the stories. And um, these are the kind of guys that I served with. We're, we're going to do a, a first here in the Freedom Hub where we actually have somebody in studio, but we also have a caller that I think is uh, a particularly good fit for our guest here. So we're going to bring Steve in from Charlotte, North Carolina. Steve, how you doing? Great, Buck. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So you wanted to tell us about the 45th anniversary of POW release out of Hanoi. That is correct. My dad was, a, I think, third one off the plane right behind the guy with the crutches. Wow, that's an amazing story. So tell me about, tell us more about this. I mean, what, how, long was he, how long was he in captivity, and what happened? Uh, seven years, ten months, and nine days. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Shot down 65, April 3rd. Came back today, 73. Wow. Steve, uh, yep. I, I got to tell you, guys guys like your dad are, are the reason why I joined and the, and the legacy that we inherited from men like that uh, who never got the welcome home that they deserve. Um, I'm so blessed to be able to inherit, inherit, the, inherit the uniform from guys like that. And so please, I mean, is, is, your, is your dad still around? Yeah, he's still around. Please, um, please tell him welcome home from me. Uh, great. Yeah, uh, is Colonel Morgan, Scotty Morgan. Uh, let's see. Uh, Quincy Collins was a cellmate of his, as was Norm McDaniel. And, uh, yeah, wow. pretty exciting. Does he Does he talk about his experience? My son was born. Does he talk so about his experience? Uh, yeah, he talks about it. Um, uh, you know, not every day, but, you know, it's funny. I have a cousin that served in Da Nang in 69, and they have a conversation. I learn more by listening. <laughs> wow. Then, uh, yeah. I mean, isn't but, that, uh, isn't yeah, that an interesting a, commentary on America, too? I feel like this country would learn more by listening to our veterans. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so he, uh, let's see, at one point he was under 100 pounds. Wow. And uh, they actually moved him out of the Hilton to uh, another place because they thought he might die, and they didn't want him dying around the other prisoners. And then he actually lived, and they brought him back. <laughs> wow. But, uh, How is his yeah, health first today? First pilot shot down, second one captured. Wow. So how is his health today? Is he doing okay? Uh, pretty good. Pretty tough guy. You know, survived two aortic aneurysms. <laughs> oh, my gosh. One they worked on at Brooks Army Medical Center before it burst, and then uh, – he didn't monitor his blood pressure too good and had one rupture. You know, that's one of those things where you, you're walking by the ER and, you know, about 10% of folks live. And uh, But he survived two of them. Well, Steve, I appreciate you calling in to remind us of the 45th anniversary of the POW release from Hanoi. And also thank you, uh, thank your dad, please, for, uh, for his service. Absolutely. Thanks, Thanks Steve. Lot, thank you very much. Wow. That's Gosh. amazing. I don't, you know, there there are the things you hear about, and you try to run through it. And look, I know you you were a frontline soldier in combat, um, but it's, the notion of spending years in captivity in the enemy's hands is something that I I feel like if you haven't done that, you don't know what that's like. It's it's truly unbelievable. I'm still reeling a little bit from just the brief time that we were on the phone with him. But I mean, guys like that. I mean, they they, they are the guys. Uh, who built this country, man. And I just feel so grateful to be in the, even in 
talked about in the same sentence as them. We're going to come back with uh, Sean Parnell, author of Outlaw Platoon. We're going to talk to him about what's going on now in Afghanistan. And also, if you got any calls, you can talk to me, talk to Sean, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Hour three, in effect. Stay with me. Other shows just talk at you. In the Freedom Hut, we have a mission. Right, we, we fight for the truth in a team effort. Roger, Roger. And Buck is back with our next play. All right, here's Buck. Welcome to Hour 3, team. Quick preview this hour. We'll be talking uh, with Sean Parnell here in just a moment. More on Afghanistan and just what's going on in the world around us. And then we'll discuss the two portraits that were unveiled today of the uh, Obamas. Maybe we'll even... Get Sean's take on some of that for a bit of a lighter fare. And then I've got the top five dogs of Instagram to talk to you about. That's right. We've, we've compiled the numbers. We've done the research. What are the most popular dogs on Instagram? And then we'll get into some uh, roll call. So I'm looking forward to all of that. I might even have a little bit of a shark, uh, carpet shark story for you later on, too. So you got to stay tuned. But we've got our friend with us, Sean Parnell, former Army Ranger, author of Outlaw Platoon, uh, which is a great book you should all read, and also upcoming Man of War, which is out or soon to be out. It's out on Patriots Day, so we yeah. did a little. So we did a little something that was un, not customary. We did an exclusive title and cover cover launch today, uh, and trying to rack up those pre-orders prior to the book actually going on sale and the reason we're doing it is because we're going to donate a significant portion of the proceeds of the sales to my charity the american warrior initiative where we turn around and give service dogs to vets so um it's a good mission we like it there's a dire need for service dogs and we like to fulfill it service dogs are incredible totally serious question what's the primary breed is it mostly belgian malinois it totally it totally depends on what you need the dog for i mean this program first of all it's in dire need the va doesn't really support it uh there are veterans that sit on wait lists for six years to get a service dog but the program is so much more sophisticated now than it was in years past the breed is dependent on what the ailment is so um, they found, for example, that black labs are great for post-traumatic stress and trauma and other dogs are different for brain injury. And then some, some dogs can smell seizures and the chemicals in the body. I mean, it's just, it's very, very sophisticated, but also what comes with that is that these dogs are very expensive as well. So, you know, what do they run? What's, what's, uh, I mean, I, I, there are organizations out there that will charge a vet $40,000 for a dog just because of the training that has to go in it. You're talking like for a full legitimately uh, service dog trained and, and certified dog. I mean, two years of training, uh, constant supervision. It's just expensive. And so what we do uh, is we come in and we fund it fully. Uh, my organization is, is not top heavy, so we have very little red tape. We see a need, we fill it, and it's, it's easy. You know, it's it's not like some of these other big organizations who would all, do a lot of great work. Um, but we just we see a need, we fill it. We don't need much recognition. But in this case, with Man of War and the launch of it, we want to give ourselves time to raise some serious money to do some serious good in the lives of vets. Fantastic. Um, moving to the policy side of things for a second here. By the way, AmericanWarriorInitiative.org? Yes, yes. AmericanWarriorInitiative.com.org. It's all there. All directs you to the same spot. Now, I want to ask you about this, and I shared this with you before. I, I, I write columns for The Hill, uh, and I saw one, obviously not one that I wrote, that, that got me thinking. I thought you'd be a particularly good person to talk to about this one. And the, the title is, America has done all it can in Afghanistan. More troops won't win us anything. And in the opening paragraph... And this is a, it's written by a vet, uh, written by an Army major, I believe, uh, and he writes the following. 
There are reports the U.S. Army is readying about 1,000 additional troops for deployment to Afghanistan. Well, they will link up with some 14,000 other U.S. service members tasked with an unachievable mission. And he goes on to say the persistence of violence after 16 years of U.S. intervention raises serious questions about the need for and ability of the United States military to address what is at root an internal Afghan security problem increasingly disconnected from core American security interests. Sean, I'm very sympathetic to a lot of his argument. In fact, I have to say I agree with a lot of what he is getting at here. If the idea is that we're going to we're going to win. The right. Taliban will be done. There's mm-hmm. going to be some surrender, and right. it's going to be a happy place in Afghanistan. I don't see that ever happening, but uh, you, as a guy who was out there doing this work, and what province, by the way? I forget from the book. You were uh, in, uh, I was in Burmel District, Paktika Province, Paktika. right on the border. We, we controlled about 135 miles of border area between Afghanistan and Pakistan. What do you, what do you think about I mean, I, it's hard to disagree with his, with his, uh, his, his policy argument is substantive. I mean, yeah. you know, this. I have been saying things like this for a long time, that it is not about, politicians get this wrong all the time, it is not about how many soldiers you have in Afghanistan, it is about the mission that they are performing in Afghanistan. Back in 2006 and 2007, the eyes of the nation were wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly focused on Iraq. You remember, the surge was happening around that time, was it going to be successful, was it going to be an abject failure, we didn't know, um, I mean, around the clock news media coverage on it, uh, but at that time in Afghanistan, Afghanistan, the the war was particularly deadly, and we were in direct fire contact with the enemy every day, but war fighters were making decisions at the lowest level possible, and we were doing it to great effect. And at the end of 2007, we were getting intelligence from the State Department passed down through the chain of command to us on the ground, uh, where they were monitoring Taliban and al-Qaeda communications uh, on the border, saying, hey, look, we are broken. We are no longer going to commit our sons to this fight. It's just not worth it for us anymore. Let's go fight the Americans somewhere else. And then we changed strategy from counterterror to counterinsurgency. We tried to basically take a cookie-cutter solution that worked in Iraq, transplant it to Afghanistan, and it did not work. And we've talked about this before, Buck. It's just, you know, nation-building in Afghanistan is fundamentally flawed. There never really has been a nation. Yeah, because in Iraq, never been you were trying to reconstitute a nation. Exactly. In Afghanistan, you're trying to build it from the from, from the yeah. start, from scratch. Yeah, it's like, go back. You, you, I mean, the, the Romans were more advanced than the Afghans are right now. I mean, if you talk to Afghans on the border in the country of Afghanistan, they don't even know that their country is called Afghanistan. It's crazy. So, um Circling back to the point that I made initially, it's not about how many troops are there, it's about what mission they're performing. If if I am making the decisions in the White House right now, what we do is we go back to a counterterrorist strategy. We put we rotate Ranger battalions in, augmented by special forces so they can work with some of the special ops Afghan guys on the ground. And all we do is target the worst of the worst. And that way we secure the Republic of Afghanistan. They can do business the way that they want. Like we're not building their nation. They can be as corrupt as they want, but we are uh, conducting and planning missions, kinetic missions in Afghanistan to kill terrorists, to keep that country from going back to being a petri dish for, you know, a, a global Islamic jihadist all-star team from where they can plan and attack the United States. That's the goal should be to keep it from going back to that. One of the troubling legacies uh, of the Obama administration on foreign policy, and that's just a fun way to start a lot of different sentences. But uh, <laughs> yeah. one of the ones that really comes to mind is the idea, and I know that, look, people, the immediate, the Democrats who know enough to know this would jump back at me with, oh, but Petraeus is on board with this. I think McChrystal's on board with this. The notion of a negotiated settlement with the Taliban to end this conflict, th- that can happen. And maybe that's the only way we leave in which there is a, a lull sure. in the conflict. Yeah. But that is actually going to end in an abject failure. There is no way the Taliban becomes something other than what it is 
once they are left in charge of some portion of the country, and they will march on Kabul, and we will have the Taliban again. So, in, in six months after we strike a quote-unquote peace deal with the Taliban or whatever deal you want to cut, the the Afghan government as it stands right now will all be hanging from lampposts in Kabul. There is, no, there is no question that the Taliban retake that country, and I don't care what generals say about this. I don't. Uh, most of them are center left for some inexplicable reason. Anyway, I don't know why. Can we, can we just delve into that for one sure. second? I've I've recently been explaining to folks that there needs to be in all in all of the uh, the minds of of my fellow Americans here a separation between people who have been doing the job and often people who are in charge of those doing the job within the federal government. <laughs> uh, from my side of things, when you get people like James Comey, for example, head of the FBI, people think of him like, oh, he's an FBI guy. He's put in the time. And I'm like, James Comey is a rich lawyer, everybody. He, has n- he is not an FBI guy. <laughs> he's not a law enforcement kicking the door, wrestling the crackhead to save grandma from a terrible yeah. fate. Like That's not who he is. He's a very political guy. True. Brennan at the CIA you go through a whole list of previous CIA directors, a lot of them very political. And I just think it's interesting because people see what's done day in and day out. And I, I look, I see this with the military, too. I never served. But with the generals, people see what the rank and file, uh, what they accomplish and what their mission is and what their ethos is. And they feel like whoever runs the place is the pinnacle of that. And that's not always the case. It's a lot true. of times they're politicians. It's true. It's so true. Generals have to be politicians. Um, but if you also think about, and I'm not specifically referring to McChrystal or Petraeus here, right? These guys are unbelievably accomplished guys. A lot of these guys have combat experience on the ground in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other places. But the vast majority of generals uh, for a long time in the military came up during in a largely peace time, right? And so for me, I... Almost 100% of my experience in the military has been combat, boots on the ground combat. And so you can imagine, it's almost like if you spent your whole life as an infantry officer coming up in the ranks and never had a bullet crack by your head, it's almost like being a painter and never having painted a painting. You can imagine the divide that exists between someone that's been there and someone that hasn't, but the people that haven't been there for the longest time in our military were the ones calling all the shots. And to our discussion before, much of the the rank and file, they're going on decades of of combat experience in in, in the military is hemorrhaging those people precisely because almost their entire career they served under commanders who had zero combat experience ever and they had a bad experience seriously the, the 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 military in general is hemorrhaging small unit leaders that are saying like okay I don't want to live my life on a constant rotation to Iraq or Afghanistan, year on, year off. I'm never going to have a lot. I'm, I'm going to go through five different wives, six different divorces. I'm going to have five different kids that they're never going to see me. I'm going to say, hey, I'll see. have a good first grade year. I'll see you in second grade, and so on and so forth. They, they don't want to do that, so they're getting out in large numbers. And in large part, the military has suffered because of it. What can be done to make this better? Well, I mean, at this point, I, I think that the Army really needs to focus on building up the ranks with quality soldiers. I mean, in, in 2006 and 2007, the Army was, they were, the military in general was so strapped for people that we opened our arms to everybody. And so we got a lot of people in that should have never been involved in the military in the first place. And what ended up happening is they'd spend two or three years in and we'd chapter them out in the military for some disciplinary action or they just didn't, they just couldn't carry their own weight so i think we just there just needs to be a hyper focus on like as we pour money into the military to recruit more soldiers those soldiers need to be the cream of the crop that absolutely want to raise their right hand to serve this country they believe in the mission they're not just doing it 
I don't know. I mean, who know? I mean, who knows? I mean, there are a lot of there are a lot of people that joined the military in two thousand six and two thousand seven that had no other option. It's just it, I I hate to say it. It's it's not it's a stereotype that's too often used, but it did happen. Um, and so I think we just need to focus on the best of the best as we bring these guys in and rebuild our military. Re- rebu- rebuilding our military doesn't simply just mean the infrastructure and equipment. It means bringing in good quality soldiers uh, that can perform a a high-speed mission, and that's really where the focus needs to be on on, on recruiting good people. Sean Parnell is author of Outlaw Platoon, which you can get on uh, Amazon right now, download it on Kindle. Some of you have listened to me on that one already and said, wow, Buck, it's a great recommendation. So some of the team is Thank already you. very fond of I your book. I am so grateful to the, what, what is it? Team the Buck. Buck. The, team yeah. Buck, the or Buck, the, Buck Sexton Army. Team. We need They'll a more militarized <laughs> name for you. <laughs> well, we do do roll call at the end of the show on their suggestion when they get to read their we the read Freedom their Hut is, stuff. you got that on lockdown. Yeah. That's a great name. Yeah. Team Buck is great, but I think I, I am going to personally come up with a militarized name for you. I love it. All right. Well, if he passes it on to us, then it's like, you know, it's like <laughs> when, my, to use it when, my, when my southern uh, Team Buck brothers and sisters say I can say y'all, I'm like, well, now I have permission, right? So <laughs> yeah. then, then I'm okay. I've been blessed. It's good. Um, also, his book, Man of War, Amazon and bookstores? Yeah, it's, it's anywhere books are sold. It's out right now for pre-order now. Help us uh, buy the book. I'm donating to, to buy service dogs, so... Uh, help us help us accomplish that mission. And uh, Sean and I are, are going to go and talk about uh, solving all the world's problems over some, uh, well, for me, tequila, for him, beer, and, and some burgers here in a few minutes. Sean, great to have you in studio, man. Thank it's you awesome so much for coming to hang out. here, man. And uh, we're going to roll in a quick break. Now, we're in the third hour, friends, and that means sometimes I'm going to talk to you about things that are not exactly uh, at the at the top of the list of solving world problems or anything like that. I am, in fact, going to tell you about the top dogs of Instagram coming up here in a few, just because I want to talk to you about dogs. I went and visited some puppies over the weekend. Miss Molly's, we're, we're, we're revisiting that issue about dogs. I know I've talked to you about it before. Um, but uh, this is the you know, third hour we get into some other topics. Right? That's what we like to do. This is a news topic. I don't know how much I have to add to the uh, current conversation other than just my my take, <laughs> right? There's not in-depth analysis of this. I, I am not uh, somebody who has a particular eye for portraiture or or the the uh, the arts in, in that way. Um, but today, the the two official portraits for the Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery of uh, former President Barack Obama and uh, former First Lady Michelle Obama were unveiled. Uh, I guess kind of literally, right? They had them covered up and then they, they took them, they unveiled them. Uh, so we got to see them. And there was quite an eruption of responses about them. The biggest issue was why is it that the portrait of... Um, Michelle Obama does to many of us, I think, not especially uh, look like Michelle Obama. You know, in in an era of of constant photography and and image retrieval and everything, we have our minds. I think are also much more attuned to someone's facial likeness. We really know what people look like now, right? It's not like this is America and. You know, a couple of hundred years ago where you'd like read a you'd read a news story and maybe they'd have some kind of an, an etching, a drawing of a political figure. 
we all we all have in our minds, I think, a picture of what Michelle Obama looks like, certainly what Barack Obama looks like as well. And now the Barack painting looks looks just like Barack Obama. Right. Fine. So no issue. We'll talk about the other interesting part of that artistic project in a moment. Uh, but the Michelle Obama painting didn't particularly look like her. And what I think was interesting was that this then turned into an issue of whether or not people were supportive of Michelle Obama as a as a public figure. Like, if you say the portrait doesn't look like her, it's somehow, you know, not like on Team Obama. And I just want to say that I, I've got no particular feelings one way or the other about, about Michelle Obama at this point. I, I just don't think it looks like her. <laughs> and I'm not trying to make some political statement. I'm just sitting here like, the portrait doesn't really look like her. I mean... Does anyone really care? I, I don't know. But it turned into a big thing today, and there was a lot of of back and forth between Obama supporters and Obama detractors. And, and if, if you, generally speaking, although not everyone, if you were a Democrat and you supported the Obama administration, you're like, it looks just like Michelle Obama. And if you're a, a critic or maybe just somebody who calls it like you see it, you're like, it doesn't really look like Michelle Obama. So anyway, that, that got a lot of attention today. For me, and maybe there's, I will plead some degree of ignorance on this, I don't know what the official symbolism is of uh, of Barack Obama's painting. If you haven't seen these, by the way, you, sh- you should really go check them out because you'll go, what? And then you can listen to the segment again back on the podcast and you'll really be able to follow along with what I'm saying more uh, more clearly. Barack Obama sitting in a chair, arms crossed, look it's a spitting image of Obama, right? It looks just like him. Um, it's totally him. And the uh, the backdrop is a bunch of is leaves, but like a lot of leaves. It looks like this is the portrait that you would expect if somebody was the president of the National Florists Association or something. Like this is uh, it, it is hard to fathom, at least from, again, maybe there's some symbolism here that I don't understand. Hard to fathom from an outsider's point of view, somebody who doesn't know what the the official storyline is, why you'd have a president that uh, is surrounded with with le- with all these leaves, just because. Just maybe it's some part of the, maybe the White House provided the backdrop or something, I don't know, but it looks a little bit. Looks a little bit uh, unusual. So you got some you got some portraits today of the president of the president, and the first lady, and uh, you know it was it was a thing that people were talking about. Like I said, I don't have a lot to add to it other than I just felt like this was the biggest news story of the day this morning. I was oh my gosh, you know the, the portraits. Everybody was spending a lot of time on them. Um, I will say the uh, the the dress that Michelle Obama's wearing is very elegant, so that's nice, and uh, the the likeness of Barack Obama is quite good. So there's that, but uh, you know, here we are, art, my friends. You know, it's it's in the eye of the eye of the beholder, I guess. And it was interesting to see how politics influenced so clearly the way that uh, people were responding to these paintings. I would just like to think that we're beyond the point where if you if you criticize anything having to do with the Obamas, you will come under attack for being a hateful, mean, bad person. Because, like I said, I mean, Brock's painting. Was you know other than the weird backdrop I thought was pretty good, but Michelle Obama's painting was just it's just not good. You know, it's just not a good painting of her. Uh, I think it doesn't. I think it doesn't do her justice. I will say I think it did not do Michelle Obama justice. Um, and that's this is one of the very rare times where I'm going to be a 
uh, makeshift art critic here on the show, I promise you. Oh, except for Netflix and TV. Like that, I'm I am a ninth degree black belt in Netflix, but portraiture is not really my, not really my jam. Um, but dogs are, and I'm going to talk to you about the top dogs of Instagram, and then we'll do some team buck roll call coming up and i will also make a brief apology for not having a shields high episode up for today soon soon i promise malta and the good guys win that one so you'll want to hear that shields high episode we'll be right back so over the weekend team i managed to actually relax a bit i pretty much stayed off of social media for the weekend or at least i didn't write any tweets on saturday i'm gonna try to get to a point where i i at least don't don't uh, create or, or or do any content on social media, Facebook and Twitter and this stuff on the weekends. It's such a psychological uh, drag, I think, after a while. I feel like you always have to be, you know, getting in there, getting in there, getting in there. I feel like for my profession in particular, commentary and analysis of the news and just in general, it's like we're all being forced to be street performers. Not that there's anything wrong with being a street performer. But, you know, in, instead of focusing on doing a, a Shakespeare or a, a Broadway play, we're all constantly running around in the street trying to do what, whatever it is, you know, our mime routine or dressed in some kind of a, a big furry suit and passing the hat around and not even passing the hat around because social media is really for free on the commentary side. So I, I just try to get away from it a little bit more now. And I think... I think rules, you know, I used to think things like limiting yourself to a certain amount of TV watching when I was a kid. That just sounded like a prison sentence. But now I think it's good to have some of those. As an adult, I'm trying to force these guidelines on myself. I had the uh, situation of being at a, at a dinner recently, and sure enough, I was at dinner, and uh, a friend of mine was across the table from me, and he he left his phone out. We're in a, we're in a pretty nice, not a fancy, but a nice sit-down restaurant, and he puts his phone down on the table and it goes, I mean, his phone is, you know, someone's emailing him or texting him or whatever it is, but it's 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 on the table lighting up and, and vibrating, I'd say about every every two minutes or so. And I'm looking at him, I'm just like, you know, can I, and he doesn't like, this is this thing, he doesn't like to have his phone in his pocket because he doesn't like the radiation, which I people have been reading about this, and I know there's radiation but I had to say, hey, I'll keep your phone in my pocket. How about that? I just don't want it on the table. I'd like to be having a meal and a conversation and not seeing a... F- I mean, I just get this... Ugh, it drives me insane. Everywhere you go now, you cannot escape the devices. I really want to start a restaurant chain that is, that is device-free. I see people now pulling out iPads at restaurants, give them to the kid. Look, that's if that's what you want to do, fine. But you got to have headphones, okay? You can't have like SpongeBob SquarePants blasting over the iPad at a at a restaurant where people are actually trying to have a some kind of an experience, right? I'm not talking about Chuck E. Cheese. That's a different kind of experience. Anyway, so I managed to pretty much stay off of social media this weekend and and hang out and. Um, Ms. Molly and I, we had really big plans to cook on Saturday because she's been just cooking up a storm recently. I mean, I told her, though, she has to lay off. Like, she can't make gluten-free. I don't know if we'd technically call it ziti or lasagna. It was kind of a combination because I just ate all of it. And then it's like, why am I even trying to go to the gym or be healthy, right? I'm just going to eat all of Molly's lasagnas. Um, 
but anyway, we, we ordered an Indian food, which I hadn't had in a long time, which was great. A little spicy, but great. And that night, Saturday night, we're sure enough, we're, uh, we're outside for a second. We're actually going to drop something off for her parents downstairs in our building. And I see an ancient-looking carpet shark, also known as a dachshund. And as you know, I've had my experiences with carpet sharks in recent months. And this one has long hair and has cataracts over both eyes. Very reminiscent of the carpet shark that, like a a little great white, tried to take a chunk out of my face when I was just trying to gently lift it up in the air and get to know the little guy at a a party in New Jersey. And Ms. Molly now makes jokes about it. She says, you know, oh, you scared of the carpet shark? I said, no. It's all right. You know, I understand now. You just got to give a carpet shark its space. But this dachshund, I mean, the, the woman has to carry it because it has, we actually talked to her a little bit. It's a nice lady who lives in our building. And she, it has arthritis in its legs. And it has cataracts on both eyes. And, I mean, this, you know, it, when, it, when it moves, it kind of shuffles. It doesn't move very, and she carries it in and out of the building because it's so hard for to walk. So, you know, I, f- I feel for a little, little furry guy. But I'm still, you know, I still got to be careful. Because, you know, even, a, even an aged carpet shark could be, could be a problem. You know, they all of a sudden gets one last bite out on you. And so the next day, sure enough, we're walking around. We're looking for a place to go to brunch. And and we, we pass. And there's really only a couple of them now in the city, uh, but we pass one of those stores. And I know you, everyone says adopt, don't shop. The, the New York City codes, though, because there's been so much pressure on uh, puppy mills, and, and they're, they're actually very strict laws. I've, I've read about this now in the city where they, they have to do, the, the city of New York, if you're going to sell a dog in New York, has to send inspectors to the breeder and has to license the breeder and make sure that, you know, that it's a, a well-run operation where the dogs aren't in duress or distress and everything else. So, that all said, whether you buy that or not, we weren't going in there to buy a dog, it's just because there happened to be two baby carpet sharks in the window. Little, little... Almost like little minnows, but with teeth. You know, little baby carpet sharks. And Miss Molly happens to kind of like dachshunds. I'll use their real name. Badger hounds. Dachshund. And sure enough, or and people have yelled at me and they've said that it's not badger hound, it's badger dog. Because hund in German is dog. Hound, dog, tomato, tomato, whatever. So we, we go in there and we, we play with the little, little dachshunds for a while. I got to tell you, they're actually pretty cute. So the carpet sharks... When they're babies, they're fine. When they get older, you got to watch out. You got to look for the the dorsal fin moving around the cocktail party. If it comes directly at you, you could be in some trouble. But uh, the carpet sharks were cute, and I'm not I'm not getting one. But you know, I'm I'm opening my mind a little bit to at least now. Maybe I'll say hi to them on the street. You know, I've I've been a little anti anti dachshund ever since my incident it haunts me to this day. Well, you know what got me thinking about this? <laughs> now I've gone on way too long about my uh, my dachshund story. Is that there's a New York Times piece, the five most popular dogs on Instagram. Drum roll. And I, I thought this was this was really funny uh, because it tells you a lot. This is a real commentary on what's going on in the country right now. Uh, so you have the five most commonly uh, posted pooches. Five dogs that are top five. And so think right now, and, and let's, you know, we get the drum roll going. Number five is the Husky, which I was surprised because Huskies are big dogs that need a lot of exercise generally, and they're work dogs. But I suppose the Husky is the one representative 
of dogs outside of, of urban centers in terms of, you know, people that if you, if you live in an area where you got trees and grass and a lot of you are like, yeah, Buck, it's called America. If you live in a place where there's trees and grass, you might have a husky. And that's number five on the list of this is scientific stuff. They, they crunched all the numbers on Instagram and that's the fifth most popular dog, the husky. Number four, no surprise here, is the chihuahua. Now, I think that is in part because chihuahuas are incredibly common in cities, right? They're, they're among the most common dogs in cities. They're actually among the most common shelter dogs, too. Chihuahuas and pit bulls of all kinds, pit bull mixes and just any kind of pit bull. Uh, those are the two most common shelter dogs. With chihuahuas, it's generally because people think that because they're small, they'll be a lot less work, but you still got to walk them. You still got to take them to the vet. You still got to get them the shots. They're easier in some ways, but the responsibility of this little furry friend is still very much the same as if you had a, a St. Bernard, right? You got to walk it. You got to feed it. You got to be there. You got to take care of it. So a lot of people get over their heads with a chihuahua and they give it to the shelter. Very sad. But the good news is that ch- chihuahuas and shelters uh, get get usually picked up right away. They don't last very long uh, from a reputable shelter. They get picked up. Number three on the most popular dogs of Instagram Oh, and also with chihuahuas, by the way, because there's a lot of like bedazzling of chihuahuas that goes on. A lot of you know, put your little gold chains and earrings and, you know, people like to dress up their chihuahuas. So that's why they're so Instagram friendly. Remember, these aren't the most popular dogs in the country. These are the most posted dogs in the country. Number three is the terrier. And first of all, terrier is is a type. It's not really, you know, not really a specific. So I don't know what I don't have much to say on this other than. I don't know which terrier they're really referring to. Is it a Karen terrier? Is it a you know a white terrier? Is it who knows? But they say number three is a terrier here, so whatever. Number two, my personal favorite, the bulldog. Bulldogs are the second most posted dogs on Instagram, and it's because their droopy faces are adorable, and we all know that that is just a fact. And one day I will get a bulldog, and I already have five different names in my head for the bulldog. And uh, that's going to happen. It's been a constant negotiation with Miss Molly. She wants to adopt. I want to get a bulldog from a breeder. And we're going back and forth on this. Maybe we'll do both. But there's a whole lot of there's a lot of territory that we need to uh, work through before we get two dogs. How about one? And then the number one most popular dog posted on Instagram is, in fact, the pug. I follow Doug the Pug on Instagram. He's very cute. He's a dapper little fellow. You know, one moment they've got him, you know, dressed up like a surfer dude. Another moment he's like snowshoes and out on the slopes, Doug, you know, the Pug. And Pugs are are very cute, very friendly little fellows, and they make great companions and apparently great uh, Instagram post dogs. So that's number one. So with that, my friends, I've told you about pups. Let's get into what you think. Let's talk about some, well, let's get into some Team Buck Roll Call coming up right after the break. So before we get into Roll Call, everybody, I just want to say I have seen and read the messages, and I promise I will soon come up with the next episode of Shields High. It's just a heavy lift, and I've enjoyed having a weekend or two of, I'm still doing the research. I'm reading, I'm taking notes. But I, I have not been able to bring myself to just spend the better part of a weekend pulling together the history show for the last week or two. But it's happening. It's happening. We're, we're going to get one coming up here. I'm shooting for Monday. I've been thinking, is it going to be the 
going to jump right to Malta, or do I need to do the Siege of Vienna, fifteen twenty nine, as a preamble of sorts, as a as a as a getting ready for preheating the oven, if you will, for the Battle of of Malta. So that's that's what's you know I'm thinking about that stuff, and then let's get into some. Oh wait, here we go. Roll call, please, sir. Oh yeah, Team Buck. It's time for roll call. Time for roll call. Yeah, we'll get some history stuff soon. Let's see what we have here in the mailbag uh, via roll call. Um, hmm. David with the following. Uh, I have a huge favor to ask. Uh, my wife and I are huge fans. And, oh, no, this is a, a shout-out request for February 3rd. Oh, I got to hold this one. I got to hold this one. This is a shout-out request for tomorrow. Producer Mike, can you please remind me that we have a, a we have a shout out request for a thirtieth wedding anniversary tomorrow via via roll call. We will make that one tomorrow. So I'm gonna whoop. We're gonna put a hold on that one. We're gonna let that one simmer overnight, and then we'll get back to it tomorrow. Uh, I think that's our first that's the first request for a wedding anniversary shout out. I've, I've had birthday requests before, and I've always tried to uh, honor those because hey team, if it's your birthday, I'm I'm happy for you. Hey team, it's your birthday. You're going to party like it's your, your birthday. You know how it goes. Um, Brad writes in, Buck, where are you? <laughs> I knew these were going to start coming in. Buck, where are you on the Shields High series? You tell a good story, my friend, and I already know the history and I'm enjoying your take on these events. Well, Brad, um, I thank you for the kind words. And it's it's coming back. It's just in a little, temp- little temporary hiatus right now. A little, little bit of a, hey, you know, Buck needs to tend to some other things in life before he gets more. Look, I, I'm going to finish. I'm going to get to 10 episodes of Cross versus Crescent. And and then what's going to end up happening is we're going to figure out where the best home should be for the Shields High podcasts going forward. Because I already have, uh, I have some American history ideas for the podcast. That will be a whole lot. And I, I think that will be a even more... Uh, resounding success with all you folks who like history. So we're going to move into that realm. Um, that's the plan, at least. I, I think the only question is, do I do ancient Greece and Rome, those battles first, or American stuff? And I feel like you'll all tell me American history. So that's that's the plan. Um, but I got to finish Cross versus Crescent first. All right. Here we go. Um, hold on a second. I'm trying to pull them up. And my, I swear, my computer always freezes whenever I want to do roll call with you guys. Live radio, it's... It's a, it's a thing that can be difficult. Jeff writes, just listening to the show from Friday. I wa- oh, man, it's about the hamster. I know, I was sad about the hamster, dude. This woman, first of all, if, if my hamster is my pet, I'm going down with the hamster. If the ship is sinking or if the plane is crashing or whatever, like the hamster does not get flushed down the toilet. That's your little buddy. It's your tiny little, it's like half the size of a chihuahua. I'm going to get some angry emails from chihuahua owners out there, but it really is. Hamster's a good little fella, you know? And I feel bad. Anyway, so Jeff writes, I wonder if that poor hamster that was flushed at the airport knows any sweet martial arts skills and could maybe round up a gang of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles down in the airport sewer. Shields high. Well, well played, Jeff. Well played. Splinter, the sensei of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, was uh, very wise and very, very skilled in the martial arts. Um... And that's where I'm just going to... And for those of you who don't know Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, uh, I don't know what to say. Um, that's It's a weird... It's a really... It, in retrospect, very weird show. Very weird show. 
Uh, Taylor writes the following. Buck, your backup beeper noise is the same voice as Hillary, and for damn good reason, both are equally as wretched. Well, thank you very much, Taylor. I appreciate that. As long as we get the basics of it, basically, I think that's good. Uh, TJ writes in, Buck, I enjoyed the Buck Peeve segment about uh, air dryers. Maybe make it a weekly segment. I kind of like the idea of on Friday just doing a segment on something that annoys me. I'm, I'm thinking about this. I'm going to talk to producer Mike and John about it. But I feel like it could be a thing we do, right? Like, for example, right now, just off the top of my head, people that on the subway decide that they're going to walk to the top of the subway steps, stop, and then look at their phone with about 100 people behind them trying to walk up the stairs. Just And, and there are people that just do this. They're like, oh, my gosh, I finally have Wi-Fi or, you know, I have signal. And, you know, I, unless you're like, a, like an ER doc and you can't find the hospital or something, which would be a whole other set of problems. I, I feel like you can wait the extra three seconds, move to the side, and let PC. I'm already doing one of them now. I, we got to find a, uh, you know, Bucks Grumble Cast or something like that. We'll do like a Friday. I think that'd be fun on the Fridays. So then people will know that uh, I, I'm, you know, it's like get off my lawn kind of stuff, which is good. Uh, let's see what else we got here. I think I have time for like one more. Show is flown by today as it up oh, jeff holland with the, with the following quit slacking sexton we need those history podcasts hope you have a blessed and fine sunday jeff i know i'm sorry i've created uh i've created a uh, situation where the only way through shields high is to do shields high and that is what will happen that's what's i've i've been putting them out there but i've taken a little break you just spend a little quality time with miss molly and now that we've had a couple of good weekends together I'm going to have to tell her, honey, this weekend, you can go do fun, normal person things. I'm going to uh, lock myself to the desk with a bunch of old dusty books and write about how the Sultan was trying to invade the heart of Christianity and destroy the Western world. You know, as one does. With that, my friends, it's going to be it for our Freedom Hut extravaganza today. I'm excited about each day with you this week, so please do uh, tune in, tell friends, share the podcast, and Shields High.